Good morning. If you will, please go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And we will be looking today once again at verses 1 to 10. Just want to start by, as we started the the service today with uh, Grace Alone. It's a book I've recently been reading by Thomas Goodwin, a, a Puritan. And I actually, have, I've mentioned this book about three or four times to different people this week because it's just been so enriching for my soul. And it's Christ Set Forth. And it was written in the 1600s, but uh, so the older stuff uh, can, can oftentimes be some of the best stuff. So I encourage all of us to, to take hold of those sorts of books. But in this book, he basically, and I've, I've only gotten a little way into it, so... I, I, can't, I can't say everything that, that's there, but one of the things that he emphasizes is the fact that for our assurance and our consolation as Christians, we should look less kind of inward at all of the things going on in our minds, our experiences, and even our own graces and duties, and look more primarily, first and foremost, to Christ and his accomplished work on the cross. It's this objective, factual, finished, accomplished work as an anchor for our souls. And so my prayer for us is that Christ and what we are given in him, the justification that comes in him. And and by the way, let me say this. Sometimes our faith fails us. Sometimes we we just don't trust like we ought or we don't don't believe in God as we want to. We don't don't walk with him as as we should. And that's when we are reminded of the fact that Christ did. Christ did. He lived a perfect life and he trusted God perfectly. So even in moments where we don't trust God as we should and we think, oh, what is wrong with me? I'm just not even, I'm not believing him. And, and even get to the point, Satan brings us to mind. Am I even a believer? I'm not believing as I should. Am I even a believer? I think it's in those moments that the heart of the Christian looks to Christ and says, he believed the Father. He trusted the Father on my behalf and he did everything on our behalf. He lived a perfect life and then he bore our sin on the tree bore the curse so that we could be forgiven. So I want to start this morning by just saying that there are many apparently good lives out there. We look out in our world, and I don't just mean Gandhi, you know, kind of the quintessential example of the kind of non-Christian moral person, you know. There are many people like this in our lives. I mean, we, we know people in our families, friends, coworkers, others whom we know, that we would look at their lives and we, we would look at them and we would say, that's a good life. That's a good, moral, upstanding person, someone who has good behavior. But one of the things we've started to look at, especially as we've gone into Titus, is that for a life to be truly a good life, it must be a gospel life. It must be a gospel life in order to be a good life. One in which conduct and behavior flow out of a heart and mind that have been taken hold of by the gospel. And that's exactly what we get. We're looking at verses 1 to 10 in Titus. That's exactly what we get in verse 1 where he says, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And we know that sound doctrine is the doctrine of God our Savior, that God has saved us in Christ And so, a gospel life, a good life, is one that sort of reaches up out of that. It flows out of that understanding of God as our Savior in and through Christ. So, let me start by saying, maybe you would consider yourself a moral person. You run into this all the time. I've seen this 
uh, in the past and family members and close friends. You, maybe you're, you would say this morning, I'm a, I'm a pretty moral person. I'm a pretty upstanding person. I want you to see what God's word actually says about you and your life. Not what you think about you and your life, but what God's word says about you and your life. If you look at the preceding verses at the end of chapter one, we see that in those verses, the, the quintessential characteristic of false teachers is that they, as it says in verse 14, turn away from the truth. These are people who do not have the truth of the gospel. And then it goes on to, on to say that their minds and their consciences are defiled. And then it goes on to say at the end of that passage that they are unfit for any good work. And so here's what, the Bible, here, here's, here's what the Bible has to say about the lives of people is that people are defiled, people are corrupted, people are unfit for any kind of moral living apart from a changed mind and conscience, one that has been reshaped by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. That is the only way to live a good life. So if you think here this morning that you are living a good life, that you are living a moral life, I would just ask you to get into the, the writers of the biblical text, get into the word of God, get into what we find in Titus and other books, and begin to let the Bible tell you what your life really is about. Begin to let the Bible tell you what the estimation ought to be of your life. We are greatly deceived. Jesus says the heart is deceitful above all things. Our hearts often deceive us. Last week, we made some general observations from Titus 2 about a gospel life. And I just want to briefly mention those points that we looked at last week. We, we went into Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and we just sort of skated over the surface. We went over the surface or kind of dipped into the beginning of it. And we made some general observations about this passage as a whole. And there were four one, I said that a gospel life is a life for all ages and all stations. Notice that as you read through this text, you get older men, older women, young, the young, the old, and then you have slaves or bond servants mentioned. It is a life of ordinariness and self-control. And the main idea that I wanted you to see there is that living a gospel life, a life that flows out of the gospel, is not really about focusing on all these mountaintop experiences. It's not about all of these events in the Christian life. It's not about selling all of your possessions and necessarily going as a missionary to Indonesia. It is about daily, although that would be great, but it is about daily, every day, living out the Christian life in such a way that adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. That is a gospel life. It's found in the ordinariness of daily life. It's not found in fireworks, displays of piety. It's found in the ordinary. Thirdly, we saw that a gospel life is a life of community and continuity. We'll talk more about that today, but a gospel life cannot be lived apart from the local church. You have to be connected to the body in order to be a member that is growing up into Christ, as we looked at in Ephesians, growing into the head, up into the head, into maturity. And then finally, we saw that a gospel life is a life for witness and defense. We see sprinkled throughout these verses, chapter two, verses one to 10, we see sprinkled throughout these verses this notion that when we live a gospel-centered life, a, a life that springs up from the gospel, so a, a, a gospel-founded life, when we live 
a life like that, we prevent people from blaspheming Christ. We, we silence those who would revile Jesus. And we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, meaning we present in, in all of its splendor the truth of Jesus for everyone we meet, everyone around us. This kind of life is apologetics and it is evangelism. So that's what we covered last week. And today we have part two of this set of sermons on a gospel life. We'll sink today a little deeper into the text as we consider in more detail each of the groups mentioned in these verses. And so you'll notice as you look through these verses, we have older men, older women, young women, young men, and then slaves. So let's go ahead and read these verses. Titus 2, 1 to 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And I want you to notice this just kind of as a, as a transition into next week. As we think about next week, at the beginning of verse 11, we have the foundation. We have this gospel foundation. For the grace of God has appeared. The reason that we live in, in this way, as described in, in 2, 1 to 10, the reason we live in that way is because of, for God's grace appearing. And then he goes on in those verses, as we have there on the wall, to explain that grace. So normally in Paul, just to give you a sense for the structure of what's going on in chapter two, normally in Paul, we get, all of the theology at the front side, right? We get all this theology, so Ephesians is a prime example. You get three chapters of theology, and then you get three chapters of practice. This is the truth, 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 truth. What God has done, gospel truth. Then, therefore, this is how you ought to live. We see that in Romans, too. At the beginning of Romans, you have Romans 1 all the way up to 11. All of this saturated gospel truth. There's, of course, practical stuff interwoven, but it's all of this gospel truth, and then we get at the beginning of chapter 12, therefore. And then we see exactly what kind of life flows out of this truth, or what are the implications? What's the, the practical application that comes out of this truth? Well, in Titus chapter 2, these two things are switched. So he begins by talking about the kind of life that is gospel-founded, and then he gives the foundation of the gospel in the latter part of the chapter. And so it's simply switched. Practice first, doctrine second. So that's what's going on 
in this passage. Let's pray to the Lord and ask that he will give us his grace this morning to understand his word. <clears throat> Our sovereign God, we are humbled by your majesty. We see your majesty in every word on every page of your word, which you have breathed out by your Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself in this book, the Bible. You have made yourself known, and through these words, you declare to us what we ought to know, what we must know for faith and practice. And today we come to a part that is focused really on practice. What does it look like to live out this life of those who belong to you, those who are possessed by you, zealous for good works, those who've received your grace in Christ? And so God, <clears throat> we just ask today that our lives would, would, would stand against this, Lord, as we, as we stand up against it, that the text would just, would just penetrate us, that it, would, that it would affect us, that it would move us and, and make us repentant, that it would make us hopeful in your grace to overcome our sins, overcome our struggles. And God, that as we stand up against next to this text, God, as we sit under it, rather, that it will powerfully reshape us and transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ, your Son. God, would you be with us this morning? We greatly need your help. We cannot do this. We cannot, we cannot understand these words. We cannot apply them to our lives apart from the power of your Holy Spirit. So God, would you be here and would you do that among us in this place? For your name's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So three major groups to discuss this morning. I want to kind of lump some of these groups together. We have the older, the younger, and the slaves mentioned at the end of the passage, the older, the younger, and the slave. So let's begin with the older. Look at verses two to four. We'll read these verses again. It says this, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or, sl or slaves to much wine, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women, dot, dot, dot. We kind of go on from there to uh, a, a description of what gospel life looks like for young women. So probably the first question to ask is who fits into this category? The older ones, the older men and the older women. Some of you who are older and do fit into this category are not gonna own it. You say, no way. I'm not in this category, and so you, you just, you, you know, you just, uh, you're, not, you're not okay with putting yourself there, but I think that we have to be realistic about who the text is speaking to at this point. And some of us who are younger may sometimes feel like we really belong in this category. So uh, yesterday, I went to pick up Jake and Jennifer at the airport. I'd been without them for about 10 days. They were in North Carolina. So I was excited to see them. I sat in the back seat with Jake. Jennifer drove so I could play with Jake. He wanted me to sit in the back seat with him. And he looks over at me at one point as we're driving down the road and he says, Daddy, you have a lot of white hairs. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure he's noticed that before, but it just in that moment, I guess the way the sun was shining on it. Daddy, you have a lot of white hair. Then he says, you're getting old. <laughs> I guess that is true, son. I'm just gonna get older and older and older. So some of us, who don't fit into this category, maybe sometimes feel like we do, or maybe, it, maybe you're the, the mom with a bunch of young kids at home and you're just feeling totally exhausted. 
And as uh, there's a, a Scottish word, knackered, and I guess that word just means you feel absolutely just thrown down. Yeah, there, there's, that word just sounds like it feels, you know. So, uh, but that, maybe that's you. you. So you feel old because you have three, four, five, 11 kids running around, and you just feel like uh, your life is crazy and hectic. I had a professor one time in seminary who uh, actually, I mean, he was joking, but he looked pretty serious about it. He said that he, uh, he hadn't slept in eight years because he has four kids, and so he's just talking about how exhausted he was. But he was a young guy, but I'm sure he felt kind of old. So who is this talking about, really? I mean, what, what's in view here as we get older men, older women? The ancient Greek writer Hippocrates, the father of, of Western medicine, from whom we get the Hippocratic Oath. Those of you who are in the medical field would, would understand this clearly. He divided life into seven periods, the stages of life into seven periods. Zero to seven, first period. Eight to 14, 15 to 21, 22 to 28, 29 to 49, which was called man, <laughs> interestingly enough. That, so if you're 28 here, you know, you've, so 29 to 49 is man, 50 to 56 is aged man, 50 to 56, and then 57, and just forward, 57 and above is uh, just elderly, I guess. That's the, that's, the last, that's the last category on the list. So at least according to Hippocrates, you know that if you're in that last category that, you know, there's that, that our text for today uh, is relevant directly to you. So by this definition, anyone over 50 would be considered an older man. There also appears in the ancient world to be a general division around the age of 40. And we understand that too. I mean, we, we talk about, you know, if someone turns 40, every, there are all these jokes in our culture about that. And that was actually the case in the ancient world too. About the age of 40, so there, there are documents that refer to people in their young, or early 40s as still being young men. Uh, and, and people who even are reaching up into their 40s as still being young men. So 40 was kind of a dividing line. Everything below that is sort of the further you go, the younger you are, and the higher you go, the older you are. We see a division also in Leviticus 27.7 in the scriptures around the age of 60. And in 1 Timothy 5.9, uh, Paul says that you need to be 60 years old or older to go on the widow list. So we're kind of just trying to fill out what exactly is meant by older man, older woman. Paul in Philemon 9, writing at the age of around 60, calls himself an old man. So uh, hopefully this helps to kind of anchor us a little bit as we think through uh, what, what might be in view or who might be in view in these verses. And I want to give you a couple of words that I think will help as we try to capture this instruction to older men and to older women. Two words, restrained and respectable. Those are the two words I think that in some ways encapsulate what we find in our passage, restrained and respectable. So first, let's look at restrained. Last week, I mentioned that at the heart of this normal, everyday gospel living is this repeated idea of self-control. You find it throughout our passage. From verses one to 10, it appears at least three times, and it's kind of implied other times. Self-control is at the heart of gospel living. <clears throat> and that's exactly what we find 
For the grace of God, as we look over here on the wall at, a few, at Titus 2, 11 to 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled lives. And he goes on to use other words. So self-control is, is an idea that has to do with us moving from being controlled by our lusts and desires to being controlled by the Spirit of God. So it's no longer co- a, a, a kind of being constrained to sin, but we're now possessions of God and we're moved along, led along by his Holy Spirit. And here we see in our passage that word listed for older men along with this idea of being sober-minded. Now sober-minded doesn't just have to do with alcohol, but it does have to do with alcohol. So you find this, uh, this idea oftentimes associated with being inebriated, with, with being under the influence of strong drink, as you would find back there in the ancient world. So that very much is part of the idea, but it has a more general notion of just simply being in control of your mind, showing moderation in your life in general terms. And then older women are told in verse three not to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. In other words, they are to be in control of their tongues and their appetites. Now, some of you may think this is funny. Some of you won't think this is funny. But in the ancient world, it was, there was kind of a caricature that older women would sort of sit around and drink and gossip. Now, I don't know if, uh, if that's something that we would sort of relate to older women today, but we certainly, we certainly recognize that even today people discuss how, how older women have a tendency to fall into gossip, just sort of talking about people, things that are going on with this person or with that person, sort of catching up on all of the news of everyone that we know. And you can find this very much in churches, we see this, and Paul recognizes this here. And so he says that older women are not to be slanderous, not to be spending their time, their free time, talking about other people. And I think there is a question here uh, that I would raise to older men and older women in our church, and that is, how do you spend your free time? Now maybe some of you have recently talked to a couple of people who've retired and it seems like as you're heading towards retirement that you think I'm gonna have all this free time. And then you get to retirement and life just has a way of filling up all of your free time so that you actually don't have a lot of time where you're just sitting around doing nothing or you're just kind of deciding what you're going to do. And maybe that is the case. But generally speaking, when a person reaches the end of life and they enter into this state of retirement, They have more say-so over what they do with their time. Time is not as constrained by the demands of daily life. And so the question here is, how do you spend your time? One of the things to consider as we get older is in the natural progression of things, we are that much closer to seeing the face of our Lord, that much closer to seeing the one who made us and the one to whom we must give an account. And I think that should matter significantly for how we use our free time throughout the course of our lives. So that's the first idea, restrained. The second word that I want to focus you in on is respectable, respectable. In chapter two, verse two, we get this word dignified, worthy of honor and respect, also the idea of being serious. Now this doesn't, of course, mean grumpy, (laughs) We might, you might be inclined to, you know, this is, this is something that you get the idea, grumpy old men. I think it was a movie back in the 90s. 
Uh, but, you know, this, this image that if, the older you get, the more kind of uh, lacking in any kind of uh, ease about your life or, you know, happiness or cheer or any of that, that you just kind of become grumpy. And that's not the idea as we have dignified and serious, but it does mean that you're not a person who's flippant and careless, that you're a person who's earnest and serious about life. And here's the thing, for a Christian, this is someone who recognizes what's at stake. If we could see the world around us truly with spiritual eyes, we would see that heaven and hell hang in the balance for for human beings. There are people since I've stood up here and started preaching all over the world who have died and gone to hell. That's a reality. There are people since I've stood up here and started preaching who have died and gone to be in the presence of the I am creator God. That's a reality all around us, all around our world. And so... The older one gets, there is this need to have this seriousness about life, not grumpy, not cheerless, but serious, dignified, worthy of honor and respect. And it says that older women are to be reverent in behavior. And the the word here for reverent actually kind of connotes being uh, priest-like, being associated with temples. It was a word that was used in the ancient world for kind of sacred space, sacred worship. Imagine that older women thinking of themselves, as the scripture tells us all of us should think of ourselves, as temples of the living God. This word here being reverent being priest-like, seeing your life and your conduct and your thoughts and your words as sacred. It's clear that that's the answer to any older woman who would want to spend her days drinking or spend her days slandering or gossiping. The idea of being a holy one set apart for God's service, being a temple of the living God, should, should totally eradicate any desire to go about your free time doing those sorts of things. And the major reason for this restraint and respectability is so that the essence of the Christian faith and Christian living can be imparted to those who are younger. That is the main practical, useful reason that older men and older women are to do this. This is God's natural means of imparting wisdom. In a more respectful day, more respectful society than the one we live in, young people respected their elders. That is becoming increasingly not the case, but those of you who are older, you remember when you were a child that that was a big deal, that you respected your elders, and there's a reason for that. It's not just because it's a social norm or it's something that you know we we think is good manners. It is because of what it says in Job 12, 12. Wisdom, is with the aged and understanding in length of days. So we understand that that when you look upon a person who's older, you're looking upon a human being made in the image of God whom God has, has brought through many trials and many ups and downs, who's brought through life. And if it's a Christian man or a Christian woman who has lived a life devoted to the Lord, you're looking at a person who has grown in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And that's a person you want to listen to. That's a person whom you want to sit with for long periods of time and listen to the wisdom that they have to give you from the Lord. And so it's a natural way of things. The older have lived longer. They've experienced things that we have not experienced as younger people. 
And so we learn wisdom from them. And let me say this, you can't impart something you don't have. You can't impart something you don't have. Wisdom does not come just with age. And, and I think sometimes there, there's the temptation among older folks in the church to think that because they are older in terms of years of the calendar that they have seen and gone through, that they are therefore mature by necessity. And the script, that is why the scriptures tell us here that this is the way older men and older women are to be because we know that not all older men and older women carry themselves in this honorable, respectable way. And so you cannot impart something that you do not have. Maturity in the true sense is what is in view here. And we see this in two ways with older men, this idea of imparting the Christian faith, of imparting the truth of Christian living. We see this in two ways with older men. First, the elders are generally chosen from older men. Hence the idea of elders. It's not exclusively the case. We know that there were younger men who served as elders. In fact, Titus is a younger man. And he of, he, of course, is an apostolic delegate. He is there working among the leaders. In fact, he himself is going to appoint leaders. He's going to be instrumental in the appointment of leaders within the church. So we know that you do not have to be an older man in order to be an elder of the church, but it was just the, the natural way of things that when you went to, to, to decide who was going to serve as an elder, that you would choose from the older men in the church. And so we know from our text that what is in view here is being an example and imparting the Christian faith, imparting truth about Christian living for the next generation. We also see older men are told to be sound in three things, faith, love, and endurance. Or we could yet take that final word and replace that with hope. These two ideas are connected. In other words, older men are to be living, breathing examples of the essence of the Christian faith. I'll say that again. Older men are to be living, breathing examples of the essence of the Christian faith. Faith, hope, and love encapsulate all that we find about the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love. And we see that with the men listed here. We see this imparting to the younger generations, explicitly mentioned for older women. And so older women are to teach what is good. They are to train the younger women. And we'll get into that more in terms of what they are to train them. And the older women are said to be reverent or priest-like, as I mentioned above. So it is maturity in years. Here's the sum of what I want you to see as far as older men and older women are concerned. It is maturity in years. Yes, it matters. Age matters. Plus wisdom plus a general demeanor of honor and respectability that draw younger people to you. That is what will naturally draw younger people to you to receive from you as younger Christians. So I wanna ask just these two questions. Are you conscious of cultivating a life that younger people would want to emulate? Or are you just sort of living on an island all by yourself? Or maybe living in a group of other older ladies where you just sort of relate to them socially. Or do you think very consciously about the fact that I am cultivating a life that is to serve as an example for younger women in the church? Let me also ask this question. 
are your pursuits of holiness directed towards the other? One of the things that we see in this passage with older men and especially with older women is that this is not just sitting around having a devotional life, cultivating a strong Christian life so that we can just sort of wrap that all up into ourselves and feel really good about ourselves because we do that. The truth is we do that. We have devotional lives, we have religious and spiritual practices that we cultivate and then we just sort of hoard all that to ourselves and we pat ourselves on the back. Even if we don't do that consciously or out loud, we can do that inside. And the way to avoid that is to think about the fact that all of our holiness, all of our character development, all of the grace that God gives us is meant to be directed towards the other. And that's exactly what we see here with older women. So I would say this, older women in our church, is your time spent in God's word, does it immediately come up and go out? Is your time in your devotional life, is your time cultivating your own holiness and your own desire for God, your own love for God, does it immediately sort of come up out of your own personal private time and erupt into a life, into lives of younger women? who need to grow in this way. It is all about being useful here. It's being useful. I know that sounds a little bit cold, but it is. We see that at the end of Titus as we get to chapter three, and he talks about uh, taking care of needs. It's about being useful because it's about love. People who love are people who are useful to others. A final note. Older men and women provide stability for the church. One of the things that Will talks about when he does in our membership class, the, the first session, the, the end of the first session is uh, Will giving a history of Four Corners. So he kind of walks through the story, we call this the story, the story of the church. And he talks about how it was planted in the Alamo and how it you know, grew. And, and one of the things, one of the crucial moments that he kind of gets to is where God started to send older people to the church and God really multiplied that so that there weren't just, it wasn't just an eruption of 20s and 30s, but there was a, a good blend of people, not just 20s and 30s, but also 40s, 50s, 60s. We even have 70s represented here. So Will commented on the fact that that, is, that was an important transitional period in the life of this church. And one of the reasons for that is because older men and older women provide anchors for the church. They provide stability. Remember that idea of being flippant and careless? That is something that we oftentimes associate with youth. And what older brothers and sisters in Christ do is they hold us back from going in wrong directions. They hold us back from just impulsive attitudes and behaviors that could be mistaken for zeal but really aren't zeal at all. They hold us back from selfish ambition and all of those things. So the church needs older brothers and sisters because they function as anchors for the church. So that's the older. Now we go to the younger. Look at verses four to eight. The younger. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. 
It is interesting that the word for training in verse four can be rendered to wise up, to wise them up. So, you know, it's the idea going back to Job that the older women are to wise up the younger women. Now, let me make a, a quick comment on this. This can be done terribly wrong. I mean, this, this, could, this, could be, this could be done in the most awful kind of way. One of the problems that you often have in churches is older women who think they know everything and they get very much into the details of the lives of younger women and act as though they have a, a greater understanding of how that person ought to live her life. And so there's this kind of pride that could be a part of this shepherding activity of older women. So it's not that. All of this must be done with maximal humility. But nonetheless, older women are to wise up younger women. And they are to be trained in three things. These are sort of three big ideas, three areas that we see in this passage for young women, in their loving, in their being, and in their doing. I wanna look at these three as we go through this for young women. They're loving, their being, and their doing. They are to love their husbands and children, verse four. Now note something here, and I made this point when we went through our series on the family from Ephesians 5. But wives, notice who comes first in that list. Husbands. You know, how frequently is it the case that young women can make the mistake of putting children before husbands? And so the children get all, and men do this too. Fathers do this too all of the time. Put the focus on the children as opposed to the spouse, as opposed to the one with whom you are one flesh. So it's just kind of a side note, but I just want you to notice that in loving your husbands, in loving your children, what we find here is husbands listed first. And out of that, out of the stability of that marital union, love for kids and stability for kids will flourish. So to love their husbands and their children. This is further described in the passage in terms of kindness and submission. You know, a lot of times we think, okay, I'm gonna go home today. I'm gonna love my spouse better. So maybe you're here, you're a young woman, and you think, okay, I read this passage. This is what it looks like to have a gospel life, to love my husband, to love my children. And so you leave here and you just think that, uh, it just means kind of having nice feelings towards them. But that's not the case. What we find in this passage are these two ideas of submission and kindness. And I'm not gonna rehash everything that we talked about in the series of sermons on marriage, but you can go back and listen to those where we talk about what submission looks like, what submission means. But that is practically how a wife loves her husband. So a wife might say, yes, I love my husband, but she doesn't submit to him. Love is an active thing. It's not just in our heads, it's an active thing. And it involves, as far as the husband is concerned, submission. We also looked at Proverbs 31, this idea of a godly wife, the model wife, the model mother, the model manager of the home. And at the end of that, we find that her speech is laced with kindness. And we find that here in this passage, that she shows her love through submission and she shows her love through kindness. So let me just encourage you, go back over that. We spent a lot of time talking about Proverbs 31 as we went through Ephesians 5 and talked about marriage. So she is to be trained in her loving. Older women are to, be, are to train younger women in their loving. They are, they are also to train them in their being, how they are to be. Once again, we have the idea of self-control. And here it is in proximity to purity. So in verse 5, being self-controlled, 
and pure. So let me just ask this. How have you been tempted, as a young woman, how have you been tempted to stray from faithfulness to your husband? In your eyes, in your thoughts, in the way that you relate to men at work, in the way that you think about other men, in the way that you are conscious of how you need to look when you are in front of other men. All of these things that sometimes can be very subtle, but it's clear here that young women need to be trained in purity. That is something that happens within the church. That's something that older women are to do, and that is something that constitutes a gospel life, a pure, faithful to her husband kind of life. And so this means guarding yourself from an adulterous heart. And we know, I mean, you you don't have to look very far to know of people who have committed adultery. Sometimes I think as Christians, we very quickly see these sort of ultimate sins. You know, adultery probably would be considered a kind of ultimate sin, one that's sort of way out there that, that all of these other little, little sexual infidelities or all these other little sexual uh, giving into our passions, giving into our lusts, all of these things are, are quite all right because I'm not really going to ever reach that point of adultery. I mean, that's never going to happen. But the truth is that all of these little things add up. All of these little mental and and visual and affectionate strayings from our husbands and wives, from our spouses, could add up very easily to adultery. That's how Satan works. He doesn't just smack you with adultery. He works day by day, week by day by week to drive a wedge between you and the person whom you've been called to love. So older women, are we attentive? Are you attentive to this in the lives of younger women? Are you, are you watching them? Are you helping them? Are you explaining to them, to them all of the pitfalls that they, could, that they could fall into? Because they need you, they need you. Younger women need your wisdom and your counsel. They need to know if you almost fell into a pit, tell them. Don't let your pride, this is huge. Don't let your pride as an older woman who's trying to keep up some kind of demeanor, some kind of false demeanor, don't let your pride keep you from from getting down on your knees as it were with younger women in the faith and telling them, don't do this. Don't do what I did. Don't fall into the pit I fell into. They need you. And if we fail to do this, then the same kinds of sins and the same kinds of activity that revile the gospel will perpetuate themselves in the church as opposed to those things which adorn this gospel that we love and that we herald every time we meet together as a body. So this is what older women are to lead younger women in. Finally, loving, being, and finally doing. Doing. We get get this one idea of working at home, working at home. Now, I won't go in once again to all of the details of this about women working outside of the home and so on and so forth as we talked about when we, when we did that in Ephesians, but two things that I want to, to throw at you here at this point, two things, two things to avoid. One is distraction, distraction. There is nothing in the scripture that mandates that women can't work outside of the home. We talked about that a little bit when we went through that portion of text in Ephesians. 
But the point here is that a woman, a, a wife, a, a mother is to have a homewardness to her life. Her, her passions, her, her creativity, her desires, everything is to, be, is to be first and foremost funneled towards the home, working at home. And so I think what we have here, one thing to avoid is just distraction. And this can happen, by the way, let me say this, this can happen not just for the mom who is working and who struggles to be focused on her home because she's tired and she's trying to make money for the family and she has maybe lots of demands at her work, not just a job where she works a set number of hours and comes home, but sometimes she has to come home and do work from home and other kinds of things that that require her to be quite busy. This is not just something that that kind of wife or that kind of mom struggles with, But this is the sort of thing that any mom or any wife could struggle with, just going through life, getting distracted with other things, letting your mind, letting your heart be on things that are not focused on the welfare and the growth of this home and the relationships in it and the characters that exist in it. So one thing to avoid is distraction. Another thing to avoid is discouragement. This past week in our gospel community group, we talked about the idea that If you're a mom, a stay-at-home mom, and that's what you do, you have your husband that you care for, you have your home you care for, and you raise your children in the home, there can be a kind of a sense of discouragement that that can come about when another mom or someone else asks you, what do you do? What do you do? Uh, I'm a housewife. I'm a stay-at-home mom. See, in our culture today, there's a kind of shame that can come along with that. And so you can begin to to feel discouraged as you're trying to live this out. You're trying to be faithful as you focus yourself even almost exclusively on your home, on your husband, on your children, on the relationships that exist there. There is that sense in which you can become discouraged and begin to feel like all of this is really meaningless. It's not, it, it doesn't matter, but it matters to the Lord. And in fact, we find here that it adorns the gospel when a wife does that. It makes the gospel look good. And and so it's no surprise that the world is ready to spit on that. It's no surprise that the world is ready to trample underfoot that very thing. It makes the gospel look good when a wife and a mom dedicates herself to the home. So what about young men? I don't want us to get off the hook. Although according to Jake, probably I should not say us. But young men are told to have self-control. This is the one thing that is mentioned. And Titus is to be an example to them. He is to urge them. By the way, I think it's interesting that he now uses a stronger, stronger word when it comes to what Titus is to do with young men. He is to urge them. Now let me make a point here too. Notice that Titus is not directly counseling young women in how they are to be better moms and wives. Notice that. Notice that, that in the church, the best individuals for discipling young women are older women, not older men and young men, because then you're asking for problems. You're asking for infidelity and all kinds of other things to happen. You're putting people in situations where temptations will abound. But that's kind of a side note. Let me come back to this idea that Titus is to urge young men. This is a strong word. And it is because more than anything else, young men need to be urged to self-control. Of all sexes and ages, there is perhaps no group that faces struggles on this front more than young men. 
young men, and the issue of self-control. As a pastor, you see that. As you relate with guys and you talk to guys about the things they're struggling with and their marriages and other kinds of things, you see this in real time all around us. We see it all around us in our culture as well. John Stott, in his commentary on 1 Timothy and Titus, mentions the following things here. Control of temper and tongue, of ambition and of bodily appetites. Young men need to, be, need to practice self-constraint, self-control in all of those things. Ambition, appetites, in the way that they speak and in their temper. All of these things are areas where men might struggle. And so we see, once again, older men and Titus as a leader are there to direct and guide through example and through teaching how these young men are to live. As we finish up this morning, we come to the slaves. You could perhaps preach an entire series of sermons on this passage, laying the groundwork for slavery. We oftentimes find that discussed in our culture. The Bible condones slavery. The Bible condones slavery. Uh, And so that is a big critique oftentimes that people bring forward against the Bible. I wanna just read a very helpful quote here so as not to to go too far into this question. I wanna read a very helpful quote from Brian Chappell on slavery in his commentary on this passage. And he says this, for the moment, Paul does not deal with the legitimacy of slavery. Paul is not, I'll just insert this comment, Paul is not trying to uproot societal institutions, the way that society is organized. Paul is interested in people bearing witness to the truth of the gospel. That was his focus. But he says this, for the moment, Paul does not deal with the legitimacy of slavery. While this is difficult for those of us who only think of slavery in the context of the despicable practices of chattel slavery in early America and in other nations even today, our context does not necessarily parallel Paul's. A slave in the Greek world included those in miserable conditions, but it also included those in apprentice or indentured relationships, domestic workers, and some who held high government office. Additionally, as the context of this passage indicates, a slave could be considered a member of the master's household and a member of a religious community with free men. The scope of responsibilities and positions was vast for slaves in the Greco-Roman world. So aside from the comment I just made, when we think of slavery in the ancient world, we should not immediately go to that awful practice that we find very, very near in our own history here in America of the enslavement of African Americans or African, the African slave trade and the enslavement of Africans as they came to America and then perpetuated itself into the 19th century. That is not what we ought to think about when we see slavery in the ancient world. It was, it was pervasive, it was everywhere, and it had various layers and levels to it, to it. But for the purposes of applying this to ourselves, I doubt anyone here uh, is enslaved, is a slave, but for the purposes of applying this to ourselves, I like how John MacArthur extends what Paul says here to employees. So we can think about this idea of slave and we can apply that to an employee. So here I want to ask some basic questions to all of us who are employees. So here we go. Do you humbly submit to the authority of your boss? 
Because essentially what we're talking about, we talk about a slave, is someone who is under the control or under the authority of another. So the question for you is this, do you humbly submit to the authority of your boss? That's basic, but this is what adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. This is what makes the gospel look good, which means that the opposite of that, which is to not humbly submit to those who employ us, to not humbly submit to those who are over us, is to bring the gospel under reviling and blaspheming words. Do you genuinely try to please your boss? So it's not just, you know, one of those things where you go to work and you submit humbly or whatever. You do what they say. But do you actively, are you proactive in trying to please them? Do you think to yourself, how can I make his life easier? How can I make her life easier? How can I enhance this company? How can I make this business to flourish? How can I be Christ in this place? And how can through this, I make the riches of Jesus's gospel known to the people I work with, especially to those placed over me? Do you fire back with your own thoughts, complaints, or opinions, or do you follow directives? You know, it's kind of like children, when you say something to them, we say to them, don't talk back. This is actually the very idea that we find at the end of our passage here in verses nine and 10, as he addresses slaves. Do we talk back? Do we speak back our own opinions and our own ideas or do we follow directives when we're told to do so in our jobs? Do you steal? Do you steal? Now immediately your mind probably says, of course I don't steal. I've never stolen from my work. But the truth is when we fudge the times that we're present, when we don't come when we're supposed to come, maybe you, maybe you punch a clock, maybe you don't, but it's easy to steal little things. It's easy to steal time. It's easy to steal little things, little material things. Do we steal from our bosses? Do we, are we pilfering, as it says here? Are you reliable, dependable, and trustworthy? These are the kinds of things, as we close this morning, these are the kinds of things that make Jesus look really good. When we're dependable, when we're reliable, when we please those who are over us, we seek to please them, we seek their good. That's what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, ultimately. We make Jesus and his gospel look good. We adorn the doctrine of God our Savior when we do these things. When we live in this way, older men, older women, young women, young men, and all of us who are under others as employees, when we live in the ways that we find in Titus chapter two, verses one to 10, we put the gospel on display. We live a gospel life. Let's pray. Our heavenly father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel life that you've called us to live. God, what a wonderful thing it is that we, although we cannot live this life, Perfectly, Jesus did in our place. He lived perfectly. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that our righteousness is not our own, but it is credited to us. It is Christ's righteousness. 
And we praise you, God, that now that we are in Christ, your Holy Spirit is daily conforming us into his image. And and every day we are growing in wisdom, in maturity. We're growing in our understanding of your word. We're growing in our faithfulness to it. We're growing in how we reflect you and how we live out what you call us to be and do in your word. So God, I pray that your spirit will apply these truths to each group, to older men and older women and young men, young women, and to all of us who serve under other people, who work under people, who are, who are employees. God, would you apply these things to our hearts? Would you apply them in such a way that tomorrow, even, even today as we leave here, that we, that we are different, that we reflect your gospel in a clearer way, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.